You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm Lou Rosenfeld. My guest today is a repeat offend. No, uh, I won't say that. A repeat interviewee, <laughs> uh, and just a delightful person to talk with and to uh, learn from. Victor Duewa. Hi, Victor. Hello, Lou. How are you? Great to see you. I actually can see Victor. You can hear him. Um, Victor is uh, going to be once again on the program at Advancing Research as one of our invited speakers. In this particular case, Victor, you are going to be in person. I mean, I've talked to you so many times. uh, We've never met in person. And I'm really looking forward to that. And you'll get to see that I'm actually six foot four. People don't know that about me. Um, look, look, look. And I have a tail. I, we, we, we actually have met in person, but this is before you knew me. This was Enterprise UX in California in 2018. I hope so, because 2017 is the one I still have PTSD from. Yes, yes, I remember that. Yeah, anyway, I was I was at a, one of the, you know, exhibition booths. Maybe I was at the Miro, or maybe at that point they were probably called Re- Real-Time Board. Or, oh, yeah. And you just came up, you were next to me, and you, you, you chatted for a little bit. I don't even remember what you said, but I thought, oh, isn't he the head of the company? He's talking, oh, cool, I love that. You know, no, no pretension, no big head, it was, it was nice. Well, you know, when you're six foot four with a tail, you you have a certain way about you that, uh, you know, you can wing it. Okay, uh, uh, enough silliness. Victor, we're going to see you in person in New York City. Uh, the conference is March 25th through 26th. Really looking forward to it. The program is fantastic, and you're a big part of it. Um, we'll get to uh, talking about what you'll be talking about in just a moment, but I should at least mention that you have, I just learned a new title, that you are the service design lead, or a service design lead at the Centers for Disease Control's Office of Public Health Data Surveillance and Technology. I'm sure there's an acronym in there, but please don't drop it on me. It's it's too early in the day. Um, I don't even know how to pronounce the acronym, so. (laughs) Well, I have a feeling I can't ask you uh, anything uh, in particular about that particular job or you'll have to kill me, but I do want to talk uh, at least about um, well about what you'll be talking about in advancing research. So you've got a presentation that uh, is titled "Beyond Methods and Diversity: The Roots of Inclusion." And um, I was thinking about your presentation a lot lately because I've noticed it's really hard not to that we, we've entered this era of um, backlash against DEI initiatives. And it's, you know, been heightened to some degree uh, by what's going on uh, with uh, the resignation of, uh, uh, of a number of college presidents uh, over the last uh, couple months. But um, uh, I guess we're seeing interesting, um, not entirely, uh, not entirely happy uh, actions taken not only against DEI initiatives, but in the financial services world, uh, the, uh, what is it, the um, uh, ESG funds. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I probably messed that acronym up. But uh, I wonder if you're thinking about this presentation of getting uh, uh, beyond methods and diversities in some sense a reaction 
to that backlash, uh, a, a counter backlash of sorts. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're definitely related. This talk actually, in my opinion, really strongly connects to the talk that I did at Advancing Research 2023, which I chose to do as a spoken word poem slash story, right? And it was one of the few times I'm trying to do it more where I'm bringing different worlds, diff different um, things that I'm involved in together. And usually I do the art space stuff over here and I do the serious research stuff over here. And it was nice to bring those two together. Were you about to say something, Lou? You know, I hadn't thought about this. Uh, folks, we don't script these podcasts, but what we could do, and I'm looking at my producer uh, to see if he's paying attention, uh, is maybe we could bring in a little clip of that. In our world today, research is not a job or a profession, a professor giving a lesson. No, think about the pluriversal meanings of research. Everyone does research as part of their tasks and job. It's embedded into the very nature of what it means to live, survive, persevere, thrive. In our world, the remaining people who work as professional researchers practice place-based research methods in the context of radical participatory research. If they are in a place with a community that stores knowledge and fables, they participate in fable-based community-led research. If in a community where knowledge is stored in dances, they practice community-led dance aesthetic research. If in songs, they practice community-led musicological research. You see, in the pluriverse, we do not have researchers who predominantly do interview-based, survey-based, and a little bit of observation-based research. There are many centers, including art-based research, dance-based research, document-based research, research into songs, fables, poems, and parables. Okay, that was cool. So that's what you did in 2023. Right, and it speaks about the pluriverse, right? And this concept or idea, I think really strongly relates to DEI and the backlash or counter backlashes, right? Because the idea is that instead of thinking of reality or the world as one world, so a universe, right? That in actuality, there's a pluriverse. There, there are many worlds. And I'm not gonna use any, try not to use any academic terms, but the idea is that there are different um, worlds or ways of being or realities or existences. So if I were to take, for instance, take someone like Donald Trump, and if I were to take someone like, let's say, a Muslim female immigrant, there are things that exist in the world of the Muslim female immigrant that just don't exist in Donald Trump's world, right? Um, Someone like me, for instance, might have to deal with police stopping me and I'm not understanding why they're stopping me and they're not necessarily giving me a reason. But there are people, I have friends, uh, white male friends who that doesn't it doesn't exist in the world. And it, it doesn't mean that police don't exist, just means that's not a, that's not a part of their reality. And so when I hear these conversations, it that's what I begin to realize, like, wow, these two people are living in two completely different worlds. And, and this is different than your culture. This is different than your perspective. When I use the word worlds, I actually really mean worlds. It can affect your opinion. Like, okay, because I live in a world where these kinds of things don't happen, I just don't believe that it's that it's there. But I also know people who live in a world where those things don't happen to them, but they've done the education, they've rubbed shoulders, they've built relationships so that they do know that it exists and they're working. So it, it's not the same thing as your perspective because your perspective can change due to relationships, but it's really like your world. And that, I think that there's a huge gap in the actual worlds that people inhabit in this country that lead to these really 
widely diverse views about how we should move forward. And, and are you saying that it's like by saying it's not about differing perspectives, you're saying it's about like different experiences based on empirical evidence? Yeah, like there are just things that happen uh, in some people's world that don't happen in other people's world. And it, it then affects your ways of being. And I think when things don't happen in your world and you don't have strong, healthy relationships with people for whom those things do happen, you don't understand that they exist. You might think they're a myth. You might think this is all made up or this is valueless. And so it's this cross world. I'm trying not to use academic terms, but we need better cross world connections, cross world conversations, cross world relationships. Um, and it's one of those things that we say sometimes in uh, systems research or mm -hmm. systems practice or systemic design. We say that uh, this comes out of feminist uh, uh, philosophy, but you can see this in indigenous and womanist. But the idea is there's this theory called standpoint theory that says in a, in a social hierarchy, in a system, the people at the bottom of a social hierarchy have a, a knowledge advantage. I'm avoiding academic terms, a knowledge advantage, because to live in that world, they have to understand some things of people who are at higher points in the hierarchy in order to navigate around them mm -hmm. and to make it without... But people at the top of the pyramid don't necessarily have to understand the worlds of other people or people at any point in the pyramid don't have to understand the worlds of people below them. And so I think there's there are knowledge gaps. We all don't have complete uh, pack, a complete image of the entire system. And we, we need to come together in conversation in order to bridge that. That's really interesting, that idea that there is like that like this asymmetry of of knowledge and perspective and perspective i suppose uh based on where you are in the social hierarchy it makes perfect sense to me i hadn't thought of it before though thanks for sharing that yeah and and i i should probably comment because we'll probably get into this that it it's also not the same as belief right it can affect your beliefs but it's not the same so to give me a good example imagine two adults uh, one believes in Santa Claus and one does not believe in Santa Claus, but they both live here in the United States where I'm located. So we would say in terms of worlds or realities that <clears throat> Santa Claus exists. Santa Claus is a thing that is felt and affects it. When you go in December to the post office, they are inundated with letters from kids. There are kids who ask parents to buy stamps and to spend time writing Santa Claus letters. There are parents who try to help and aid Santa Claus in doing the work that he's doing. So regardless of whether or not you believe Santa Claus exists, there is a, a, an effect, an impact on our time and our resources in the world. And so we would say that is a part of our world, even if you believe in Santa Claus or even if you don't. Mm -hmm. So, okay. Now, let's you have this 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 belief you you uh that's real. It's you know, assuming Santa Claus isn't actually real, it it's real in a sense is what you're saying. We we make cookies for him, we and on and on. Uh, uh okay. So, um when you have that imbalance of what we know 
in the social hierarchy and how we sort out what is real to us, whether it's belief-based or not. Does the, now, let's bring it forward for the researcher. Mm-hmm. So does that, does that affect the kind of, well, you say beyond, beyond methods. Is, are we saying we don't, we're not talking methods? We're talking about researchers being drawn from, you know, the, the lower end of the social hierarchy as a step or take it forward for us? Yeah, it means it means to think about the thing that I'm calling worlds. You could also think about it as ways of being or realities, or ways of existing. So what we tend to do is we say, OK, we want to do inclusive research. And usually I think that means that our research includes, you know, all the people that we're thinking about or trying to serve or for whom we're hoping to design something for. Um, maybe it means we do something participatorily. So we will grab a toolkit, an inclusive research toolkit, or grab an inclusive research methodology. We'll do some type of exercise that involves a reflection about bias on our team. Um, there are exercises like the positionality wheel. And we can say, oh, let's look at the positionality wheel and, and all of us on the team. Oh, wow, we just discovered that we're all able-bodied and we don't have anyone on the team who has a disability. Or we just discovered that we're all college edu educated, right? Or, you know, there's another one, the power wheel. There, there are all these different tools. However, the methodology is resting on some assumptions. It's resting on certain ideas about what is real and what isn't real. So the way that I like to think about it without using academic terms is imagine a tree. The roots of the tree are ways of being. The trunk of the tree are ways of knowing. The branches of the tree are, you could call it ways of doing, but methodologies. Mm -hmm. And the leaves of the tree are methods. So when we normally try to do inclusive research, we're always messing around at the leaf level, the methods or the branches, the methodologies. But those methods and methodologies are based on a specific way of knowing and a specific way of being. So to give an example, to help out a little bit, Imagine you lived in a world, and I think this is how most the world that most of us live in, or at least the dominant understanding of existence in the West, is that things are separate. I'm separate from you, we're separate from nature, and things are separate. And that's there there's a type of individualism that characterizes how we are, our ways of being in the world. And because things are separate, because that's how we are and that's how we understand the world, then the way you know something, so I'm going up to the, brand, the, the trunk of the tree, the, our ways of knowing get affected by that because we think of knowledge as separate and knowledge resides here or there or maybe it's in your head or maybe it's in that book or it's in that paper. So because knowledge is separate from us and knowledge resides in a particular location, then the way you know something is to get that knowledge wherever it is and to get it inside of you, mm -hmm. maybe through reading, taking a course or some type of. So then our methodologies end up being in this way of knowing and way of being end up being extractive. We go to the place where it is. We kind of get the knowledge and we bring it to ourselves or at least transactional. Maybe I give something in order to get that knowledge, to transfer that separate knowledge that's separate from me to me. 
So, so all of this gets stacked upon that these methodologies and methods are built on ways of knowing. That's the trunk, which is built upon ways of being or worlds. That's the roots. The problem comes, of course, when you're in situations, and I often find myself in these situations where you're doing research or design research for people with different ways of being or segments of the people for whom we're trying to do design research have different ways of being. So when we use colonial ways of being, colonial ways of knowing, and ultimately colonial methodologies like I was just talking about, they are not viewed as inclusive to those communities and people with different ways of being who inhabit different worlds and have different ways of knowing, right? There are communities, for instance, that view knowledge as relational. Mm -hmm. So knowledge doesn't exist in a place. It's only in the in-between. It's in the conversation. It's in the relationship. And apart from that, it doesn't, it, it's not real, doesn't exist. Um, one one really great example, I, I was reading a book to my kids and it was a children's book about a whale. And I can't remember what type of whale, but I remember, I think it was like a papa whale and a child whale. And the papa just kept telling, you know, stay close, stay close. I don't want you to get in water that's too deep. If the water is too deep, you know, we might lose each other. But let me tell you, if we lose each other and you can't find me or see me, you can always find me by my song. Hmm. And all of a sudden I had a flashback, like I'm going all the way back to me being a child because I come from an African indigenous people group called Ibibio, South, Southeast area of Nigeria, Delta region, Nigeria. And one of our ways of being is song, right? So we, we have songs about everything, songs about the sun rising, songs about the sun setting, songs about, washing and cleaning up like song is just a part of how we are and operate and because of that watch this i'm going to move up from the roots to the trunk songs are how we know if i listen to songs that people are singing i might be able to tell the time because people sing certain songs at certain times of day if i listen to songs that people are singing i might be able to tell people's emotional state because people sing certain songs in certain emotional states so i remember growing up and my mother would tell me these stories, right, from our from our people group, right? And one of the stories that we have is similar to, I think you would call it like a Hans, sorry, Hansel and Gretel story mm -hmm. from Europe. So we had these two kids, a brother and sister, and they were in what we would call the bush. You could say the forest, et cetera. And for whatever reason, the mother had to go out. And sometimes she had to go out and it was late and dark and it was very scary. And I used to be scared listening to this story. And I remember that the mother would always say, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, but the mother would say to the children, don't open the door for anyone but me. And when it's me, you can open the door and I'll come in. But the way that you know it's me is by my song. And it made sense. Like song is so much a part of who we are. Song then becomes the way that we know things. Mm -hmm. Right. And then song then be can become a methodology for research. So, so all of that to say is that there's a connection between our ways of being, the roots, our ways of knowing, the trunk, and then our methodologies. And when we change the methodologies without looking at ways of knowing and ways of being, that we're still doing methodologies that may not be inclusive of people with different ways of knowing and different ways of being. Well, um, you got me thinking about so many things. Uh, um, uh, it sounds like um, 
inversion, inversion, <laughs> inverting of that tree might be a big part of uh, what advice you may have for people who might be uh, coming to our conference, uh, you know, UX researchers, these are researchers. But my head is still swimming right now, so um, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, and we're going to get back to it once I've had a, a moment for this to settle in. Uh, so interesting, Victor. Uh, everyone, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review, and uh, we will be right back. Hey, it's Lou, and you know that I like to tell you about upcoming conferences. We do four of them a year. This one's extra special. Advancing Research 2024 is going to be the first in-person conference we've done since 2019. Thank goodness. I can't wait to see people in person. It's going to take place in New York City at the Museum of the Moving Image, a great venue. We've used it before. March 25th and 26th with workshops on March 27th. Advancing Research, this is the fifth edition. We uh, really speak to people who are at least midway through their careers and are looking to get way past the 101 stuff. You'll love to know that the featured speakers are Trisha Wong, Victor Udawewa, Steve Portugal, and Neil Barry. Got some other great people on the program, like Nalini Katamraju, um, uh, Nick Fine, Robin Beers, a bunch of other great folks, and a great lineup of workshops. So if you are a researcher of any kind, and you want to be with other researchers in a really great intimate venue with really high quality content, join us at Advancing Research 2024. Check it out at advancingresearchconference.com. Whew, yeah, Victor, uh, my head is really swimming. I, I didn't even remember to welcome people back to the Rosenfeld Review after the break. So I'll do that. Welcome back, everyone. So, um, you know, while we were talking before the break, I mean, my, my brain was just going in so many directions. You, you got me thinking about um, maybe reading for a third time Bruce Chatwin's song lines, uh, mm. really about singing, really singing the world into existence. And, um, uh, you got me thinking about embodied cognition and, and how, um, someone from, uh, a non-Western perspective would look at that. But let's, let's get back to this idea of the tree where mm -hmm. the, you, you said that the roots are about being, and at the very opposite end of the, the spectrum, the, the leaves are the methods, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you were telling us that maybe um, we need to think about inverting that, stop starting with the leaves and kind of take it in the other direction. Can you, I don't know, paint that picture in a UX research context a bit more? Is it, um, how, how do we get at the, the being aspect and, and start there rather than at the other end of the of the tree yeah normally what happens is that even if we're doing collaborative work or participatory work so participatory research and we invite people in we start at the level of methodology right we so we're assuming a certain way of being we're assuming certain ways of knowing right knowledge exists separate from us we got to go out and get it and bring it to ourselves and so we start with this kind of framework of, oh, you ask a research question and that determines your methodology and that determines your methods. But those methodologies might be quite exclusive to the people 
with whom you're doing that research because they may come from different ways of being and ways of knowing. The difficulty, of course, is that it's very difficult for someone from a Western way of being to suddenly create or produce Eastern methodologies, right? Or it's very difficult for a colonial way of being to produce a liberatory or emancipatory methodology. So, so because that, 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 that coloniality or the, the Western centrism is in me, it's, it's very hard for me to come up with some. So when you look at a lot of these inclusive research toolkits, and I don't want to name any because I'm, critical, I'm a critical supporter, I support them, but I also want to critique them to make them be better, that oftentimes they look pretty much the same as what we normally do. They might have some activities of reflection, some awareness-based activities that are kind of interspersed throughout. But really what I see on my research and design teams is when people try those, they just are more aware, but then they're stuck. Mm -hmm. So there's this mythology around, oh, awareness automatically leads to action. But what I've seen is that people become aware, but it doesn't necessarily lead to action. And so the only true way to get, in my opinion, to some type of different kind of liberatory, mandatory, even a relational methodology is for that to come from people who have a relational or liberatory emancipatory way of being. It can't come from me. And so that speaks to some of the things that I've been talking to or talking about before when I talk about radical participatory research, that ultimately it's about letting go. If I come into an engagement with a group of people and I say, wait a minute, why don't I not choose the methodology? And if we're really truly co-partners, why don't we let the methodology rise up from the ways of being of the people with whom I am doing this research? Then they have the power to kind of lead it into a different direction, into the pluriverse, mm -hmm. the, the the world of many worlds of, of research, right? There are all kinds of ways to collect and gather, store, analyze, synthesize, transmit, communicate knowledge that go way beyond just interviews or surveys, et cetera. And that use really ways of doing methodologies that are more in tune with other ways of knowing and ways of being. That's fascinating. And um, uh, I, I love also that you are tying this, which is the, you know, the basis of a talk you'll be giving at the 2024 conference in March. To, to talks you've given in the past at the same conference. And just as an aside, I take a lot of pride in that connective tissue, that narrative arc that you're bringing to this event and others as well who are involved in it and have been in the past. So I, you know, as you're talking, now I'm coming at this from, I'll acknowledge a very Western perspective, um, probably no surprise there, but one of the things that um, I've always been railing about in research is the kind of inability for um, us to get beyond the gathering of um, lots of different types of knowledge or evidence or what have you. Uh, and it, as you say, it's often very sort of siloed, it's stored, it's separate. And to do the kind of synthesis work that to me, where when you make that stew out of those ingredients, you actually get something that's much tastier than the ingredients themselves, that 
you know, you get some sort of insight that you can only get through that process of, of synthesis and, and analysis. Again, those are very Western yeah. terms. I, I acknowledge that um, that's a constraint on how I'm looking at this challenge. That said, I wonder if part of the reason we tend to suck at doing that in uh, the Western world of researchers is that um, that cultural individualism really kind of uh, hampers us from doing the synthesis, having the right kinds of conversations or the right sort of perspectives on yeah. what all this different information means and how it connects and relates. So I wonder what your thoughts yeah. are on that. No, look, there's nothing wrong with Americo-Eurocentricity. Let me use that term. And by that term, I just mean a particular approach that comes out of ways of knowing and ways of being in the United States of America or Europe. Nothing wrong with that. The problem or difficulty, I think, for us is Americo-Eurocentrism, where then you say, this is the gold standard. This is the way, the only way, the universal way to do it. And if you don't do it this way, it's not real. It's not real research. If it doesn't look like this, it's not real knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's been the problem, right? It's the domination, the totalizing across this world to say that this is the one way. And so it's like having a soup that is all, all if you eat meat, meatballs. Like, well, no, no, no. Let's, let's tone down the meatballs. Let's have some cabbage and some carrots and maybe some potato and some leeks. Like, you, you need to mix it up, like you talked about. You, you mentioned a stew, so that kind of popped into my mind. And so it's saying, what is most appropriate in this case? What is most helpful? I mean, think about it. If you go back to the tree method, met, uh, metaphor, go back to the tree metaphor, there's another part of the tree that I didn't even talk about, right? Which I'm going to avoid academic terms again, but imagine sap. Mm -hmm. Right. That's running up from the roots and the trunk and going to the branches. And that I would call our system of values. So even a part, well, it's definitely not a part. It's connected to the ways of being and ways of knowing. But even the very research question you ask is affected by that system of values. Yeah. So, so, so maybe, maybe your methodology is fine, but maybe it's not inclusive because the people that you're trying to be inclusive with or for don't care about that question. Like it's not important or relevant to them. So who is asking the question? Who is prioritizing this research? Or even better yet, whose knowledge is increased by this research? Mm -hmm. research? And almost always it's to help the researcher and not to help the community who already has that knowledge, right? So how are we creating research initiatives that are about improving and increasing the community's knowledge of who, whom we're helping, right? In order to have more agency to do whatever they're trying to do that maybe we're, we're trying to help with. And so there are all kinds of things to think about in terms of ways of being, ways of knowing, and systems of value that then affect what we ask and how we do that type of research that don't have to be dominantly universal in only one way but are suitable to the world of the people for whom we're researching. Well, and um, it, that's a risky thing. It's hard to do. 
you're swimming uh, uh, upstream in almost every setting that uh, that pays your salary, surely. Um, but I think it's worthwhile, and I'll, I'll I think um, I'll, I'll wrap us up with uh, uh, the memory of you doing your um, your song as your presentation at uh, Advancing Research last year that we heard a little clip of earlier, and. Um, it was unexpected. It was mind-blowing. It was so much fun. Uh, it, but it, I imagine it took a lot of courage for you to do that. That was not an easy thing. And uh, I, I'm so glad you did that. Uh, of course, now you're going to have to, you know, at least reach that level, if not beyond, for your presentation <laughs> at Advancing Research in uh, New York oh. in March. That's all. Um, yeah. But, Victor, uh, so... Interesting. I wish we had more time. Um, but before we uh, wrap up, I do want to uh, know what you brought for our listeners. What gift do you have for them today? There's a beautiful book and it's it's decades old, but it's on its third edition and there's been new additions to it. It's still relevant today. It is called Decolonizing Methodologies. It's third edition and it's by Linda Tuhiwai Smith. Uh, Maori scholar and professor. Um, it really talks about what it means to decolonize our methodologies. But remember, decolonization is not the goal. It's just a step. The goal is a pluriverse, mm -hmm. right? So we decolonize it to then move to a place where you have all these different methodologies that are talking with each other. This stew that you mentioned, Lou, um, where you're able to use what might be most appropriate given the worlds that people inhabit. Fantastic. Uh, and I know that book's come up certainly at the conference in the past and uh, good to have it one more time on the radar. Victor, it's great to talk with you. It's always a lot of fun. I'm really excited to see you in person again. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> and uh, I'm really looking forward to uh, advancing research uh, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I look forward to seeing you as well. Take care. You too. Hey, it's Lou. Thank you for listening to the latest Rosenfeld Review podcast. I really appreciate it. I would love to hear from you. And if you want to pop me an email, lou at rosenfeldmedia.com. Tell me what you thought. Better yet, leave me the hell alone and post a review on your favorite podcast platform. Please feed the algorithm. It really does make a difference. We want to get the word out. If you like the word, give us a hand. And uh, while I'm asking you for favors, don't forget, buy books. Support your favorite local independent publisher. We happen to be one, rosenfeldmedia.com. All those great UX books are there. So thanks again. <laughs>